I'm pretty fired up because today we get to start a brand new series, and this particular series is different than any other series that uh, we've done, at least in recent history, because this series is a biography series. Normally, we take different books of the Bible, and we kind of work our way through the book and go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. But uh, in this particular series, we're going to be looking at um, a particular figure from the Old Testament, someone uh, that uh, lives a life of faith that I think is commendable and worthy of our attention. But the question can be asked is why are biographies so compelling? How many love a good biography? I love a good biography. As a matter of fact, my favorite movies are biopic movies. I still remember when Daniel Day-Lewis, that great actor, brought Lincoln alive. I still remember the movie 42, the Jackie Robinson story, just sitting on the edge of my seats. I love when historical figures are, are brought to life. And I came across this quote and uh, it helped to kind of crystallize, at least in part, why uh, I think biographies are important. It comes from the great historian and author Carter G. Woodson. He said this, those who have no record of what their forebears have accomplished lose the inspiration which comes from the teaching of biography and history. You know, there is an inspiration that comes from biography and history. You can hear someone's story and you can be inspired not only by the great triumphs of their life, but I think equally, if not more, by the great trials of their life because we identify with both. Not that we need perfect people, but we need relatable people whose stories we can see the hand of God's grace in. As a matter of fact, I think this is one of the great reasons why the Holy Spirit moved upon biblical writers to capture key biographies for us. It's to spur us on and inspire us to greater and more bolder faith. God wants us to have great and bold faith. And sometimes when we're navigating through the face of a fallen world, we wonder how can we demonstrate faith, a bold faith towards God? And these biographies help to bring it to life. But I also came across this quote by the great actor Clint Eastwood. How often have you heard his name in church? Clint Eastwood, he's a, he's a producer as well. He says this, discretion is not the better part of a biography. I love that. Discretion, embellishment, that's not the best part of a biography. He says, if you're doing a biography, you should try to stay as accurate as possible to reality. How many have ever heard or seen the type of storyteller where facts become secondary? The most important part of the story is that it's exciting and compelling. Anybody know that type of person? Anybody married to that type of person? Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. I don't want to get you in trouble. But some of us uh, are, are so passionate about the story being told well that facts can be embellished. Well, we don't need to embellish the Word of God in particular the Word of God. Here's the, here's the reason why, because the Word of God needs no embellishment because it does not lack power. As a matter of fact, the more accurate you are with the Word of God, the more powerful and transformational it becomes in your life. And so today, we're going to look at an Old Testament figure. His name is Elijah. 
Now, Elijah is, is truly a compelling person, and I think he's compelling for a number of different reasons, but I think James sums it up this way. James, in James chapter 5, the New Testament book of James, verse number 17 says that Elijah was a man of like nature just like us. That he had a nature just like us. That the same type of struggles we have, he had. Anybody ever, by the show of hands, struggle to trust God? Anybody ever struggle with doubts? Anybody ever struggle with discouragement? Anybody ever find themselves asking and wondering, God, how could you let this happen? Where were you? Anybody ever think or contemplate about walking away? Maybe, maybe not walking away from God fully, but maybe just for a season saying, I'm going to do me and I'm going to do what feels right in my own heart. Well, if you ever have been there, then you can identify with Elijah as we go through his story, as we look at a portrait of his life, there will be things that we will see that will celebrate, that we will celebrate because of his strength, but there will be a lot of moments of weakness as well. And what it will remind us of is that Elijah is not the main character or the hero of his story. That the hero of his story and the hero of our story is God. How many know that you are where you are because of the grace of God? That it's not by your might, it's not by your strength, but it's been by his grace and it's been by his power. So before you give yourself an attaboy or pat yourself on the back and say, look at me, how strong, how wise, how smart I am, I think we would do well to be reminded that if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, where would we be? How many thank God that he is faithful and that he did not give up on us? The hero of the story, the hero of every biography is God. So turning to 1 Kings chapter 17, we're going to be introduced to this man called Elijah, but let me give you a little bit of background story. If there was an overarching storyline for the life and times of Elijah, it would be this. It would be the decline of a nation due to political corruption and unrest. I mean, you say, that sounds a little bit familiar, right? So he's living not during a high point of Israel's history. He's actually doing, living during a, a low point where Israel is on a decline spiritually, morally, economically, and socially. Now, you need to know a little bit about Israel. When God started this nation, he wanted them to be unique, unlike any other nation. So he did not give them a president. He did not give them a governor. He wanted them to be ruled theocratically by him. He wanted them to be God-ruled, and so he gave them spiritual leaders, starting with Moses, that will lead them spiritually, because so goes your soul, so goes your life. I want to say that again. So goes your soul, so goes your life. If you are not where you should be spiritually the rest of life, relationships and all of your hopes and your dreams and all of your aspirations and hard work, things will fall apart if you're not where you need to be spiritually. That's not true on an individual basis. That's true on a family basis, and that's true for nations as well. 
So Israel starts off with the spiritual leaders, a succession of spiritual leaders. But then when we get to 1 Samuel chapter 8, around verse number 6, you see Israel pleading to God, give us a king so that we might be like the other nations around us. We want to be able to boast in a strong man. We want to be able to have a king that sends head and shoulders and chest to chest, eye to eye with the other kings of the people around us. But remember, God didn't want them to be like the other people around them. He made them different. And oh, by the way, he doesn't want you and I to be like the other people around us either. He wants us to look to him for our source. Israel wanted an idol. An idol is anything we trust in besides God to make provision for us. And they wanted to be able to look at a king whose primary job it is to bring prosperity. Any leader knows that their job primarily is to bring uh, prosperity by any means necessary. And Israel didn't want to have to look to God. They wanted to look to people. They wanted to look to a king. God warned them, you don't want this. I promise you, you don't want this. Has God ever warned us, you don't want what you're praying for? How many, as a matter of fact, I want to have a praise break for just a moment. How many in here have a few things that you wanted that you thank God he didn't give to you because now you look back on it and you say, I really didn't need that. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I won't mention no names, but I will just say this. There are times in my life where I look back and I wanted different uh, friendships, relationships, and God closed doors. And I look at life right now and I say, praise God for what he did not give me. And that's my own amen. <laughs> but Israel insisted. And so God said, okay, I'll give you what you asked for. And he gave them Saul. And they lived to regret it. Saul was everything God said he would be, and he took advantage of them and their children, and he was an ungodly leader. But then God was merciful to them, and after Saul, he gave them David, and David was a man after God's own heart. He was not a perfect man, but he did sincerely love the Lord, and he becomes the prototypical king. He becomes the king that every other successive king gets compared to. It was through his line that God sent the Messiah, the eternal king, Jesus, who will rule and reign in an everlasting kingdom. David ruled well. The kingdom expanded under David's leadership, but then David's son took over. His name was Solomon, and Solomon loved the ladies, and he married a whole lot of women from foreign nations. And the Bible says that he married these women from foreign nations, and he gave his heart to their gods. And Israel began to worship idols. So goes your soul, so goes your nation. So the nation went on this decline, becoming more and more wicked and and then David's grandson, Reboam, took over, and when he took over, the kingdom was no longer unified. It becomes so uh, conflicted, so divided, so immoral that it becomes two separate kingdoms, Israel to the north, Judah to the south, never to be united again. And they have many kings, and if you want to guess how many of those kings were good and godly kings, the answer in the northern kingdom was zero. But the seventh king was the worst of all. His name was Ahab. He was the wickedest of all the kings. And it's into this moment that we're introduced to Elijah. And what we're going to see here is what a life of faith looks like. And I'm going to argue that a life of faith 
is a life trusting God and taking him at his word. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word. Has two qualities, this life of faith. The first is unconditional obedience. Look at this, verse number one of chapter 17. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tisbe in Galilee, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives uh, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the, Lord, and the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook of Kerith, uh, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kerith that is east of the Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. It goes on to say in verse number eight, then the word of the Lord came to him, arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and uh, went. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was go, uh, going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And, he, and she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour and a jar and a little oil in the jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake uh, of it and bring it to me. And afterwards, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. How many know that's a good place to say amen and amen? What an incredible and miraculous story, but so full of oddities. The first oddity is that we're not giving any background information about this character Elijah. It's as if he stepped upon the pages of history out of nowhere. We don't know anything about him except for two things. Where he's from, he's from Tishbe, but we also know his name, Eli. Jah, Elijah, which means Yahweh is my God. That tells me a lot about his mom and his dad, what they, their convictions were, that in a season where the nation was worshiping idols, where it was in moral descent, that they looked at their son and they said, not you, you are to worship God. 
You know, I don't know how many of you were raised in homes like me where a mom warned you before you went out to watch how you behaved yourself in public because your behavior was a reflection of the family. Anybody have a mom like that? A few of you rose your hand. The rest of you just were told you could do whatever you wanted to do. But my mom was not like that. My mom reminded me when we went out, you represent us and you represent, more importantly, God. And I have kept that tradition when I talk to my children, not as a burden to them. I don't ever want to burden them with perfection because we can't be perfect people. But I do want them to be reminded of who they are. That to be a Brooks means that you are a worshiper of Jesus. That the hope, the vision, the dream of every Christian family should be a multi-generational legacy of faithfulness to Christ. His parents told him, you are Elijah, Yahweh is your God. Every time his name was called, he was reminded of who his God was. That was so deeply instilled in him. Parents and grandparents, I will encourage you to do that for your children and your grandchildren. The greatest gift you can give them is to remind them of whose they are. And even in seasons where their life doesn't reflect that truth, you keep speaking over their life until their life aligns with that truth. Never stop trusting God for your children and your grandchildren, and never underestimate what God can do with their lives. I don't know what Elijah was like as a boy, but I know what he was like as a man. He grew up with deep conviction, deep enough to fulfill three commandments of God without questioning it at all. Did you notice there was three commandments God gave him? One implied, two very specific words from the Lord. The one that's implied is God said to this man, go to the king, this fierce king and his wife, Oh, by the way, his wife was a woman named Jezebel. Anybody ever heard of her before? Right? Here's how bad Jezebel was. She was such a bad, vicious, evil, ungodly woman that even to this day, if you call a woman a Jezebel, she knows you're not giving her a compliment. Right? You're a Jezebel. So he had a vicious wife who would kill to get her way. And it was into this environment that God says to this man of God, you let them know that I control the rain. Because they're worshiping the God named Baal. And what Israel and the rest of the people around them believed is that Baal controlled the rain. He was the uh, fertility god. And he was married, this god was married to this, this Asherah who was considered a fertility goddess. And, and they controlled the rain was the predominant thinking. And God says, no, I'm flipping over every idol among my people so that they might know that I am God. God has no problem declaring war on the idols in your life. And he will even at times in his own way withhold provision, not give you what you want so that you might be brought to the end of yourself to look to him. If you ever find yourself in a place where you are totally having to look to God for your provision, don't limit that moment because those are the moments that God gives us so that he might prove to us that he is Jehovah Jireh. He is our provider. So God says, no rain. And for three and a half years, there was no rain so that he can show them that he was the God of rain. But then he tells him to go, if that's not bad enough, go live by a brook and I'm going to feed you with some birds. 
How many find that a little bit hard? Right? God is saying, I'm going to provide for you supernaturally, and you just trust me. And he lived by the brook until the brook dried up because of the famine in the land. There was no rain. So because of the drought, the brook dries up. And then God says, if that's not bad enough, go to a poor place, a poor uh, region, and you'll find a poor widow who's going to supply you with the food you need. It just keeps going from bad to worse, seemingly. But don't give up on God when things seem to be going from bad to worse. I want you to notice verse number five. It's arguably the most important verse that we've read so far in reflection to what we can know about Elijah's heart. And it says this in verse number five. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. Notice that he didn't put any conditions on it. You know, sometimes we as parents incentivize our kids. Anybody ever done that before? Incentivize your kids and say, well, if you do this, I'll give you this. Yesterday, I was inviting my uh, 12-year-old son, who's about to turn 13, into a Bible study. I said, listen, we're going to study the book of Proverbs together. And uh, we started yesterday on what wisdom is. And we talked about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom. And I said, son, sometimes I incentivize you and your siblings to read certain books. And if you read certain books, we'll do certain things. But I said, I'm not going to give you an incentive for this one because the incentive is built in. If you fear the Lord, you'll have wisdom. And if you have wisdom, you'll live skillfully. That's the total payoff. So no conditions on this. Our obedience to God should not come with conditions, prerequisites. God's not negotiating with us. He is Lord, we are not. So we can't come to God and say, God, I'll obey you if you do this, that, and the other for me. How many know that he has already done enough for us by redeeming us to demand our allegiance both now and forever? How many know that if he doesn't do another thing, he is still worthy of all of our worship, all of our praise, all of the time? But yet... He is good. He is merciful. He obeys immediately. And he not only is blessed, but on the other side of his obedience, those connected to him are blessed. I am sharing this word with you, for, uh, for you for sure, but not just for you. On the other side of your obedience to the Lord, those connected to you will be blessed. Earlier this week, I did a funeral for a man, 99-year-old World War II veteran. It was an honor, a true honor. His name was Peter Goulian. Peter lived in this region for many decades, and God used him and poured in the life of many. But his family story starts in Armenia. And those of you who know a little bit about that nation, it's the first Christian nation. 301, they became a Christian nation. When I met with his family preparing for the funeral, they gave me a book that his nephew had written. Uh, it was a biography on the life of the family. It was absolutely amazing. I didn't realize it was a gift they were giving me in many ways, to not only help me to be familiar with the family, but this biography has been so compelling. I've been reading it all week. And it starts with the story of his grandfather. It starts this way. It says, Kevork Julian, this is when he was in Armenia and the Turkish Muslims had come in and they were committing the genocide against the Christians there. It says, Kevork Julian had two choices. He could deny Christ and accept Islam or he can march with thousands of other Armenians into the desert until thirst and starvation overcame him. Goes on to say, Kevork 
chose to be true to the Savior. This book starts with the martyrdom of their grandfather for the faith that he had in Jesus Christ. But because of his obedience to Jesus, there has been a multi-generational legacy of faith in Christ. And I met not only Kevork's grandchildren, but great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren this week, and all of them serving God, worshiping the Lord. I'm telling you now that there's a blessing on the other side of your obedience and your faithfulness. So here's the question we're confronted with. When Elijah was asked by the Lord to do something, he did it. He said, yes, what about you and what about me? See, I'm convinced that God is asking us to do certain things. And the question today is, will you say yes? Maybe for some, he's asking you to adopt a child. Will you say yes? Maybe for others, he's asking you to forgive someone who's offended you. Will you say yes? Those are hard assignments. Maybe for another, he's asking you to stay in a difficult marriage or to love a difficult child. Maybe for some in here, he's asking you to say yes to a ministry assignment, to follow and obey God, to leave maybe a corporate job, to, to, to follow the Lord where he may lead. Will you say yes? Maybe it's an act of generosity beyond what you've ever done before, and God is saying, trust me and do this. Will you say yes? Or maybe it's something simple like, to call someone or to text a, a note of encouragement to someone. It's hard for me to believe that I will ever be faithful in the big things if I can't be faithful in the small things. But as I read this text, I'm urged by God through the life of Elijah to show unconditional obedience, and I am reminded that if I do, I will see his provision, but so will those around me. But the story doesn't stop there. In verse number 17, it takes an unexpected twist. It says in verse number 17, after this, uh, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe there was no breath left in him. That's a, a, a euphemism for the fact that he died. He stopped breathing. Verse number 18, and she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on the bed and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house in the into the house and uh, delivered him to the mother. And Elijah says, see, your son lives. And the woman said, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. 
Elijah is confronted with this moment, and it was not the moment he expected. What do you do, friends, when you obey God and you expect a particular outcome, but the outcome you get is different than what you expected? He did not expect after verse 16 of seeing the provision of God for verse 17 to happen and the son dies. But what does he do? He does what we read earlier in Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 2, fixing his eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He did not waver. He fixed his eyes on God. And even when the woman said to him, why have you brought this calamity on me? He kept trusting Jesus. There will be times when people will question your commitment to God maybe even mock your commitment to God. I want to encourage you, keep your eyes on Jesus. There'll be times when people will say, you're justified in abandoning God. No one would blame you if you stop following God, stop trusting him, stop being obedient to him. Maybe your kids might say that to you. Maybe your spouse, maybe your friends, but keep your eyes on Jesus. He would have never saw the miracle he saw had he taken his eyes off of God. Then he prayed an honest prayer. You don't have to fake it before God. You can be honest. He prayed to God, God, why have you allowed this to happen? Why would you kill this boy? It's okay for you to go to God honestly and say, God, why would you allow this to happen? And you know what the answer is going to be? So that you might see my glory. God is sovereign. He is not just sovereign over mountaintops. He is sovereign over valleys. And if you ever find yourself in a valley, relationally, valley physically, financially. Don't think that God abandoned you. He sets up valley moments so that we might have mountaintop experiences. It was in this moment that God was setting up the man of God and this wife so that they might see his glory. Now, that doesn't mean every dead person is going to be raised from the dead. What makes this unique is that normally dead people stay dead God gave her a special act of his kindness. But as I often tell my children, God is not good to you the way he's going to be good to somebody else, but he is always good to each one of his children in the way that they need. So don't look at somebody else's blessing and say, God, that means that I'm going to get that blessing. That's what they needed. God knows what you and I need. He knows what valleys we need to walk through in order for us to depend on him more. And he also knows what miracles we need to see for our faith to be boosted. But he does it. And Elijah lays over this boy. And there's been a lot of mystery on what was that all about. And I won't speculate because I believe that where the Bible is silent, we must be silent. But where the Bible speaks, we must speak. Here's what I do know. What I do know is that the prevailing thought of medicine during Israel's day of Elijah's day is that dead people were contaminated. They were unclean. And the prevailing thought is that when you came into contact with something that was unclean, you became unclean. God reverses all of that. What he is saying to Elijah again 
and again and again is what may seem to be unclean and broken apart from me totally changes when I step into it. He takes unclean birds. These ravens were unclean birds, but when he got involved, they became used for his redemptive purposes. He takes a dead body, and instead of that dead body making the man of God unclean, when the man of God lays on it, life enters into the dead body. And he takes an unclean, broken human being like Elijah, like you and me, and when God steps into our lives, he makes much of our brokenness. So don't you feel like you got to bring a lot to the party. It's not us that makes the difference. It is God in us that makes a difference if we keep our eyes on him. And so don't be afraid to step into dark places. If God be for you, he is more than the world against you. I was um, talking to uh, the kids at Hope Week. I was invited to come to Hope Week. And they asked me to do the introductory session. This is a week of service that our teens go through. And I gave them two questions. I'm going to give these questions to you today. What evil exists in our world that God has called you to eradicate by his grace? What evil exists in the world that God has called you to eradicate by his grace? Second question. And then we're going to worship together as our worship team comes. What's broken in this world that God has called you to fix by his grace? We are not meant to hide out in our churches. We are meant to be trained so we can go out into dark and broken places and bring the power of God. And when the power of God steps in, things will be changed by his grace and by his goodness. But we cannot do it alone. Remember the words of John 15 and 5. Jesus says this, apart from me, you can do nothing. But in him, all things are possible.